0: it's super easy just go to current.com slash okay okay and download the app that's current.com slash okay current is a financial technology company not a bank banking services provided by choice financial group member fdic and cross river bank member fdic welcome to OK computer i'm dan nathan i am joined as always by deirdre bosa she is the host of CNBC's tech check debo welcome back
1: Hello, Dan. As always, an honor and a privilege. Love being here.
0: We have so much to cover here today. We're going to talk about lots of goings on in the chip space and NVIDIA's report after the close on Wednesday is really going to be the main event, but we have a continuation in this sort of tit for tat between the U.S. and with China with chip production and who can sell to who. And we also have this headline I thought was really interesting out of Apple and Broadcom talking about moving some 5G chip production here to the U.S. So all welcome sort of stuff, but stick around after after. Debo and I cover a whole heck of a lot. We have my very good friend, Dan Turani, He's the co-founder and managing partner at Gutter Capital as a VC firm here in NYC. And he also brought with him two really interesting guys, two CEO and founders of companies that are working at the intersection of this energy transition in the home. One of them is Max Vegaberg. He is the CEO at Tetra Home Services and Eric Ouske, the CEO of Treehouse. And two really, really interesting topics, Debo, you're gonna really find this interesting. Eric's company is really trying to make accessible home charging for EVs, and they're really working at the point of sale to kind of just kind of speed up the transition here and work on some of the incentives that are worked into the IRA that was put in place last year. And then Max's firm is really focused on the energy transition as it relates to HVAC systems and the like. So I learned a whole heck of a lot. So stick around for that conversation. All right. Deirdre, let's hit this Apple Broadcom announcement, multi-billion dollar deal for chips to be made here in the U.S. That's a 5G radio frequency components. When you think about this, Avago, Broadcom, whatever you want to call them here, 20% of their sales come from Apple here. When you see a headline like this, you really have to start to take seriously this kind of reshoring of a lot of manufacturing we know it's not just the issue of supply chains and then also the kind of geopolitical tensions that exist here but it's also just a matter of kind of national security and that's something that i think we've learned over the last couple of years something that started out with a black swan event that was the pandemic but then when you see the heightening of the rhetoric between us and china it really does become an issue of national security
1: yeah, chip security has become one of the central themes of the last few years, first the shortage and then with all the geopolitical tensions. What was interesting about this, Dan, Apple announcing it, right? You don't typically hear it that way. You typically hear about a company being so honored to work with Apple and get 20% of its sales through Apple. So the fact that Apple announces this is kind of interesting, especially, you know, as it works on its own chip and with the M series. Of course, you have to imagine that Apple is still working on something similar, but it's announcing a multi-billion dollar deal. So great for Hawk Tan. At Broadcom.
0: I think it was Tim Cook announced this initiative back in 2021 that they were going to invest $400 billion in the U.S. economy, and they laid out a bunch of different ways in which to do that. And, you know, it's interesting because Tim Cook is obviously was the architect of just this creation of this supply chain mechanism through China that really, you know, like saw this company go from, you know, I, I mean, when, when Tim Cook took over, when you think about the revenue base and where they were as far as market share. And the smartphone market. I mean, it just exploded in, you know, 10 plus years um, since Steve Jobs' passing. And so when you think about the deep ties that he has um, to that region, you know, the further they Kind of get away from some of those earlier commitments and you know tim cook was just in india and then obviously you know the hundreds of billions of dollars they said they're going to invest here in the us i wonder do the chinese become less focused on this relationship and all of the kind of really friendly agreements that i think china has you know benefited from you know in this age of kind of tim cook over the last 10 years
1: Apple and Tim Cook were able to achieve what very few tech CEOs and CEOs at large have been able to do in China, right, which is not only sort of capture the consumer there with the iPhone, but place the supply chain there, which has opened them up to a fair amount of risk as well, right, that we've seen kind of come to the forefront over the last few years, then you know, whenever I have an Apple analyst on tech check on CNBC, one of my questions I always want to hit is how are you pricing in that China risk? And you know, we know Tim Cook thinks a lot about that. So how is he transitioning? We know he's diversifying away because he doesn't really have much of a choice, right? We've been talking about it so often is, is that we see that with Mike Ron and with others too, the consequences. But as much as Apple is beholden to China, right? We've talked about this before, Dan. China is so beholden to Apple in terms of the employment picture. So you got to think, how is China diversifying on its side as well as we read these headlines about Apple going into India, more manufacturing in the U.S.?
0: We opened the week here with uh, the Chinese. You know, they were had Micron under a, a security review and they announced to a, a bunch of like, uh, you know, key national security OEMs in China that they could not buy certain chips from Micron. And it's interesting, you know, they targeted one of our companies that has just a little more than 10% of their revenue exposure in China. And when you think of Qualcomm has two thirds of their revenue exposure. Broadcom has nearly 40% or so. And when you think about that, it's like, what was your take on that? Was that just like a minor shot across the bow here. A company like Broadcom, if you just look at the stock, it's making new 52-week highs today. It's just broken out. I mean, these are basically all-time highs. This stock has gone from $600 at its lows just a few weeks ago to nearly $700. And so it seems like investors, there's a little bit of a sigh of relief that the Chinese don't have their sights set on Broadcom right now. But the more headlines that you see like this, where a huge, you know, like, like customer, like Apple, that's, relied on China for all the manufacturing and for the creation of these kind of extensive supply chains, you have to think, again, I'm going back to the same question here, is that the Chinese feel less of a commitment from a company like Apple and puts them more in their radar.
1: Yeah, so there's this term in Chinese called guanxi, and it basically means to give face. And so, you know, it's it's also you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, but also you take something away from me, I have to show face. You know, maybe that's a little bit of what China's trying to do here. It can't smack down a company the size of Apple, it's still too dependent. But a company like Micron and some of the smaller ones where it's not essential, maybe China does something to restrict them to gain a little bit of that guanxi or that face, right? It can do it around the edges. We all kind of know that it's not substantial, right? They can't do it to an NVIDIA or Broadcom. So maybe it's China's way of saving face until it can do more. And I think that's key because we don't see everything that Beijing is doing. We don't see how it's preparing for Apple to diversify further away from that one China strategy. So this is only on the surface, but we know that China doesn't have chip industry in terms of manufacturing or design in the same way that Taiwan or South Korea or even America does. It's interesting because it's made that a strategic priority. Xi Jinping, the president, has made that, poured billions and billions of dollars into manufacturing higher end chips, and they haven't been able to deliver in a substantial way so far. And I don't know. It's it's hard to know if and when they will. But it's, it's essential, right? As we talk about these new industries. No
0: doubt about it. And it's interesting. And, and, and we're going to switch gears a little bit to NVIDIA. Like I said before, it reports Wednesday after the close. And when I look at a company like Broadcom, though, it's really fascinating to me that, you know, it has a very similar revenue base. They actually have more expected annual revenues, about $35 billion versus an NVIDIA that is maybe going to print 30 billion trailing here. And when you think about the just the differences in valuations, and a lot of it has to do with growth rates though, right? So, you know, Broadcom, expected to grow sales maybe like mid to high single digits which versus at 25 plus for nvidia but i look at a broadcom that has a higher gross margin about 74 percent versus nvidia at about 67 percent and it's just astounding though when you look at an nvidia trades 25 or so times sales versus a Broadcom at eight times sales and about 17 times earnings versus about 67 times earnings for Nvidia. So it's just really interesting when you think of just the difference in the sorts of chips that Nvidia is making and who they're exposed to. This headline about Broadcom was about 5G frequency chips. You know what I mean? They're going into iPhones, not particularly advanced or anything like that. And I just highlight it because this Broadcom is just blowing out. It's making new all time highs at below a market multiple and well below one of the largest chip makers in the space.
1: Two letters for you, Dan. AI, right? That's all you need to know about the The premium that NVIDIA is able to fetch 5G radio components is not as sexy as artificial intelligence and whether that's grounded in anything substantial, yes and no, right? Certainly, we know that NVIDIA has the prime chips for artificial intelligence and for all these companies to develop their generative AI models, but a lot of the price is on the promise that it's gonna to continue to dominate this market, which may be less uncertain.
0: Well, it's interesting. So Nvidia, again, like we said, the implied move in the options market into their earnings print is about eight, 9%. And I would just go back to mid to late February when they reported their last quarter, the stock capped up 14% to a new 52-week high. Here it is. It's not far from the highs that just made last week. It was trading at 318, now it's about 308. The all-time high is not much higher than here. When you think about Jensen Wang, the CEO, he was on on CNBC last week. He's been at a bunch of like trade conferences. He's been talking up a lot. Uh, you know, th- there's a bunch of press releases about some of these new advanced systems. And so it just seems like the expectations are sky high at a time where valuations couldn't be just kind of more white hot here and i'm just hard pressed to think about like what sort of quarter they will need to put up and what sort of guidance they will need to give to keep this kind of train rolling it's a three quarters of a trillion dollar market cap and again trading about 26 27 times sales i mean like i I, you know in some ways like that would be high on a pe basis but as a multiple to sales that just seems kind of nuts here do you feel like this whole kind of chip rally and the outperformance that we've seen in the in the philadelphia semiconductor index it's just really tied to this one name right here.
1: To NVIDIA, but I think you've also seen AMD sort of get a boost as well when they started talking about artificial intelligence and the role that they would play. Not a lot of evidence yet, but again, I don't know that the market's gonna care that much about NVIDIA's, I mean, okay, of course they're gonna care about NVIDIA's guidance, But this is a secular shift, right? Jensen Huang has to go out there and talk about the next five and 10 years. And that's really what the stock's been trading on, is that promise and high-end chips that's going to enable a lot of the artificial intelligence developments that everyone else is talking about. So it's a computing power. It's something that investors are able to hold on to, whereas the promise that we're seeing from Meta and Amazon and Apple, a little bit further off, a little bit harder to grasp. All
0: right. You just bring up a great point. And again, this is me putting my fast money hat on, you know. AMD's stock sold off 9% on May 2nd after they reported a disappointing quarter and guide. And since then, the stock has gone from basically 81 to 109 because of that headline that we talked about on the pod a couple of weeks ago when Microsoft said that they are going to help AMD and basically guiding them towards the sorts of chips that they need as an alternate source away from NVIDIA and some of these other makers. And the stock has literally gained, I mean, just 35%. When you think about that in market cap term, okay, it, it, it really is wild. I mean, you're talking about $50 billion in market cap off a headline. And that's kind of where we are right here. And I think a lot of investors look at this as kind of a cheap way to kind of play this, especially if you have Microsoft insisting that they are going to be, um, you know, a, 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 a customer, right, and help in the design and, and and the financing, but that just kind of shows you kind of where we are. This thing was, you know, kind of left for dead three weeks ago, and now it's making new two week highs.
1: How quickly those fortunes can change! I read a, a Wall Street note earlier this week looking for the next AMD or even the next Google. You could argue a company that you know, a few months ago was thought left for dead by the shift to artificial intelligence and that they, they weren't leading it. And then all of a sudden that flips and they just go off to tie this to the first story we talked about, Apple Broadcom. I think this is interesting because something that's not discussed quite as much, maybe because this is further off and there's skepticism over whether big tech can actually successfully design their own artificial intelligence chips. We know they're all working on them, Meta, Apple. Uh, Google, Amazon even, they're all working on their own AI chips. And once in a while, we ask, could that actually ever displace an NVIDIA H100? It seems so unlikely and so far off. But I go back to Apple and its M series displacing Intel and how that seemed to have happened in a blink of an eye. So maybe that's one of the risk factors, a far off one that the market hasn't priced in too much, but something to keep in mind, perhaps.
0: No doubt about it. I mean, it's pretty astounding when you think about the move that NVIDIA had from early 2021. The stock was trading at about $120, got as high as 350 in late 2021, traded all the way back down late last year is trading below 110 and here we are at 307. So again, it seems like this is the poster child for the enthusiasm around almost every major technological shift that that I can think of over the last five years, yeah, so Data true. And gaming and crypto, crypto. and AI, the, the list goes on and on.
1: He was also on the metaverse, but that didn't really turn out as of yet. But, he, but Jensen Huang was prepared for the metaverse and digital twins. <laughs>
0: yes he was all right so moving to something that i think is a, a story that that you've been reporting on for a while and i know that these gig companies are, are right in your wheelhouse also there was an article last week in the information that really caught my eye It was talking about instacart obviously still a private company and, and a hotly anticipated ipo when that market reopens but it was talking about grocery delivery firms ad revenue totaled about 740 million dollars in 2022 that was up from 2021 and is also making up nearly 30% of Instacart's 2022 revenue. Now, one of the big, bear cases on a lot of these sorts of delivery companies. It's just been the unit economics really suck for these things. And so when you think about as they grow and their ability to kind of have much higher margin revenue from advertising, talk to me a little bit about this because this is something also that you've tracked with the rideshare companies. And until you mentioned it to me not too long ago, I started recognizing these ads in my rideshare apps that I just generally didn't pay much attention to. But this is making, I think Uber had over a half billion dollars in ad revenue and again we know this this was a really
1: annual run rate yeah
0: annual yeah i'm sorry annual run rate here and we know that this was a story that an amazon was really kind of buoying the valuation especially as aws was making up more and more of their profitability and north american retail was just not particularly profitable when they got to 10 20 $30 billion in annual revenue from advertising. This became a real behemoth here. So talk to me how you're thinking about it as far as these services companies are concerned.
1: Yeah, and how it could maybe save the gig economy model. I think that's why Uber and Lyft and DoorDash also has sort of jumped onto this advertising train. But I will say, Instacart was here first. I remember talking to this company years and years ago. purva who was the founder and CEO, he stepped down a few years ago. But I remember going in and them saying, listen, we have an advertising model. And I was thinking, but you're a gig economy company. you know." And he really got my head around it and their CFO at the time. They also had an enterprise business where they would build a website and do all the backend for a lot of the grocery companies that just didn't have the technology, didn't know how to use technology to do that. And of course, that was at a time when not as many people were getting online grocery delivery. but. Instacart has been well positioned here and they've had their eye on advertising for so much longer than any of the other gig companies. I would argue probably longer than even Amazon has, but it's not a public company and it obviously doesn't have the same size and scope as an Amazon, but that is why I've always heard reporting on these companies that Instacart's profitability was so much better and that it would be surprising when they finally did go public because we're so used to these crappy unit economics from Uber and Lyft that Instacart would come out and it's been profitable for some time because of that advertising business. It's high margin. and um, You made the comparison to Amazon, right? That was cloud. But as cloud slows, advertising is becoming that engine and it's true high margin where you know, the unit economics of ride sharing and food delivery just are not good because it's essentially a 3P platform.
0: I just want to highlight a story. It was actually from a Substack Madison and Wall. My friend Joe Marchese over at Human Ventures sent me last week. And the headline was US services spending up 9.7% during Q1 2023, reflecting ongoing growth for important advertising categories. A really interesting data in this. And when you think about just the transition that the economy has gone in from this, you know, dramatic demand for goods during the pandemic when we couldn't actually go out and do things. And now we're seeing it shift more towards services. And when you think about these companies that we just talked about, obviously, Instacart was a huge beneficiary of some of the dynamics during the pandemic. And the flip side of that was the rideshare guys were having a tougher time. And now they're doing much better that the economy globally has, you know, opened up and we're seeing consumers shift a bit more towards you know services and i just mentioned this because think about some of these these ad models and these social media companies i mean they got absolutely destroyed when you think about meta facebook was down nearly 80 percent from its all-time highs that had like you know memories of the kind of post.com apocalypse from 20 years ago and look at how some of these companies have benefited look at how a netflix which introduced an ad supported model that stock was up 10 percent last week on that headline that they had 5 million subscribers to that so it's kind of an interesting thing to track. Maybe some of that you know, winter that we had for digital ad spending, maybe it's over and maybe this shift in the economy is kind of signaling that.
1: It has been surprising, the last set of earnings, how resilient advertising has been. I do wonder with Uber and Lyft, with very little experience in ad business, with all of a sudden the competition heating up and the gig economy, how they're going to do. You told me you've seen some ads. Did you get any push alerts? I got a push alert ad, which which I did not like, Dan. I'm
0: one of those guys who I go to my Notifications within my iPhone. I just turn them all off. I just don't like getting pinged and pinged and all that sort of stuff. There, so all right. Well, listen, Deidra, I really appreciate you joining me. We this is gonna be a big week. I think it's gonna be a big week for the Nasdaq because I really feel like Nvidia is the last major company to report expectations are sky high, valuations are sky high. I think all of the goings on in and around the space. I really feel like you know at some point we're going to have a cooling of that. And maybe it's just because NVIDIA is not able to post the quarter and the guide that some investors who are willing to pay these multiples are willing to do that, but we will see. And we will definitely cover that next week. So I appreciate you being here.
1: We will see. I feel like we've been saying this for weeks though, and the market just keeps in tech, just keeps grinding higher. We'll see. We'll see. All
0: right. Well, I appreciate it. All right, Stick around for my conversation with Dan Turan, Eric Oski, and Max Vegeberg. Cross River Bank member FDIC. All right, Welcome back to OK Computer. I am here with Dan Turan. I think many listeners of this fine pod will recognize Dan. You've been on many pods with me, haven't you? I have been lucky to be here a few times and it's great to be back. Yeah. So he is the co-founder and managing partner of Gutter Capital. And so this was a, a kind of a special pod here because it's something that Dan, you and I have been talking about a little bit, some of the focus of Gutter Fund Zero and Fund One here. And, and you guys took a different approach and we've hit that on some other pods and some of the investments that you're looking to. And, you know, really since this Inflation Reduction Act, which was, what, three quarters of a trillion dollars? I think almost half of it was earmarked towards the sorts of climate initiatives that were really important, I think, to the Biden administration that they campaigned on, that they came in. This was their first major legislative um, accomplishment here. And I think there's a lot of folks who are really excited about it for a whole host of reasons, not just people who are focused on the climate, but there are. Really, really practical um, business applications that I think you could apply to it too. And so we have two of your founders, um, portfolio companies of Gutter here. And so Eric Ouske, he is the CEO and founder of Treehouse and Max Vegeberg, uh, CEO uh, of Tetra Home Services. Guys, welcome here did I just murder your last name?
2: No, no, that was pretty good. Okay. That was pretty good. All right,
0: all, right, all right, I just want to be really clear here because I saw it in writing for a while, and I was trying to think in my head a little bit. Okay, oh, yeah, yours was yours was really yeah, easy. Yeah, my, my dad my dad might give you notes,
2: but really, I, I bet, okay. but I'm I got the German pronunciation. Uh, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And you guys, I, I mean, I want you guys to talk a little bit about your companies. You guys, one thing is really interesting about the three of you. You guys both had really successful exits for your first companies that you found, which I think is uh, uh, honestly amazing here. Um, Max's is still going. Max is still going. Yeah, Okay, about to right. come, yeah. okay fair enough. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about the foundings of your company. And, and and again, we go back to this was not about the IRA. This was about stuff that you guys believed in, about really good business opportunities. But we'll talk about the landscape right now and, and how it really is probably going to help accelerate your business a little bit. Eric, let's start with you a little bit.
3: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm the founder of Treehouse, and we're a machine learning-enabled home electrification company. We were pre-IRA, so we saw an enormous opportunity in home electrification, You know, $150 billion addressable market over the next 10 years. And what we saw was a lot of challenges to scale, a lot of challenges with the small things. How do you price and scope a job without visiting the home? Um, how do you automate a lot of the elements of permitting? We think those are really critical to scale. They're also really critical for one particular market, which is EV charging. Right now, EV charging is sort of treated as a separate transaction from the purchase of the vehicle but home charging is essential and we're trying to, make it very easy for homeowners to get home charging installed. All
0: right, take a step back, because you said uh, two letters that seem to captivate the markets, both public and private right now. So AI enabled, like, so- So well, I said machine learning. Oh, I said you machine did. Oh, see, I
3: just, when uh, I hear <laughs> machine learning
0: deep, anything, it's just AI to me. We're not, so, I'm
3: not gonna say generative AI. Yeah, no, no you're, not, you're yeah. not there yet. Yeah, but uh, it is a model that learns, and yeah. uh, and it helps us price jobs, yeah. uh, price installation jobs at homes without visiting
0: the home. Danny, he's been talking about HVAC for a while to me. This is like a theme that that you really wanted to focus on a little bit. Why was that something important to gutter? This is going back again before all the incentives. And we want to talk about the incentives because I think a lot of people here who are listening to the pod, these are not top of mind sorts of things. Home charging for EVs, definitely so. I think less so when it comes to electrifying the home.
4: Yeah, so I think like, and Max can speak to this, you know, probably in more detail than me, but when James and I started looking at electrification overall, mm-hmm. if you look at American households, I think it's something like 12 or 13% of carbon emissions come from heating and cooling. And if we want to take a big swing at reducing climate change at the household level, it's pretty clear that the HVAC system has to be at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, the heat pump has been used in other countries for decades and it's quite effective and it was starting to get traction in the U.S. It's already quite popular actually in the South. And so we saw this opportunity to accelerate adoption of heat pumps in the U.S. Obviously the Biden administration saw the same opportunity. And then the other thing I would add is in addition to retrofitting existing households with HVAC with new systems, part of the reality of climate change is there's going to be millions of American homes that need HVAC systems for the first time and why not get started with heat pumps? And so when we met Max based on his experience uh, with his prior company, We were really excited to to roll
2: up our sleeves and dig in with
0: Yeah, so Max, how did did this come on your radar? Because you've been in this for, it seems like, almost a decade now.
2: My first startup was really focused on helping utilities achieve their energy efficiency goals. So, you know, utilities would say, hey, we want more solar. We want more energy efficiency. We want, you know, more high efficiency heating and cooling. So we'd create a relationship with them and then help them, you know, build up teams in those markets, focus on those areas. And so, you know, I just sort of pulled on this thread of like utilities, investing in incentives to help drive the adoption of these technologies, really just right out of college. And so grew that company, which is really more of a utility services company to like five or 600 or so people without kind of intending to just sort of pulling on the thread of utility services. I realized exactly how uh, dysfunctional the, uh, the heating and cooling market is.
0: So l- let's talk a little bit about the lead up. I-, I mean, some of these incentives, you know, they were much higher, in, you know, before the Biden administration actually were able to kind of get the Senate and, and the House to to, to to sign this bill here. And so but even at three hundred and seventy billion dollars, you know, what I mean, this is like the biggest Thing that's that basically happened clearly in the US. I know that there's some other very big initiatives around the globe here. Like, what did this mean for you guys as far as the way you thought about the sort of acceleration of your businesses, Eric? I'm just curious because this is like a great first start. And but it's not something that's like settled in a way. When you think about this debt ceiling debate that's going on right now, like some of the things that the Republicans want to do is they want to roll back some of these climate initiatives. And when you think about it, and it's like, Tons of red states are going to benefit dramatically from this bill here. And it just seems like are we at a point, and I'm not asking you to opine that this is more me, have have Republicans convinced their constituents to vote against their best interests like in a way that it just doesn't make any sense anymore? I'm just curious because it seems to be like not exactly a bipartisan sort of thing right now.
3: Well, I think to your point, it's it's gonna benefit a lot of red states. Dan already alluded to this. Heat pump adoption is highest in the South in, in temperate climates. For EVs specifically, the IRA does a lot. And I, I think my perspective would be we could have done more with the IRA. I think it the the size of the challenge is enormous and you know we think more public investment is useful. But with EVs specifically, the credit for EVs that you know is going to roll out over the next few years, we think it is going to dramatically change the consumer market for vehicles. The investment in fast charging you know, uh, all over the country is going to really, I think, change the equation for consumers as they think about, can I buy an EV? Can I road trip with it? Can I have an EV as a first car? Can I have an EV as a second car? Over the next 10 years, we think it's going to accelerate adoption and, and make it viable to have two EVs even for longer commutes and road trips and things like that. So from our perspective, yes. I mean, it does a lot to accelerate adoption of EVs and then as a byproduct of that home charging and we think other electrification products uh, just as much. So once you adopt an EV or once you you know install charging at home, it's more likely that you're going to adopt other electrification products. You're going to go from gas hot water to electric. You're going to um, you know, go from gas cooking to induction stove. So all of those incentives are built into the IRA and we think will dramatically shape consumer behavior over the next decade.
0: I think in 2022 in the U.S., I think 6% of automobiles sold were electric vehicles here. And so I know that this bill like wants to see that like, get to 50%, what, in a decade or something like that. I mean, are those achievable goals right now? And what is standing in the way? Because one of the things that was really interesting is that Elon Musk held his investor day, I think, uh, about a week ago or so. And it was interesting that a lot of folks, a lot of the reaction to that is like, oh, well, you know, I don't really care about climate change, but I don't want to go to the gas station anymore, like stuff like that. I think that was really interesting, you know, because, and, and Elon definitely has like a little different of a bent right now. He might've started out with some lofty goals as it relates to climate, but a lot of folks that he's appealing to right now don't really believe in climate change, which I think is a really interesting sort of uh, like business
3: I, I don't think moralizing is is super useful in this environment. I think that the investment is going to accelerate consumer adoption and whatever people's motives are, you know, we think, um, they make home electrification will make homes more comfortable. They'll make homes safer. I believe that it's urgent for the planet, but I don't think that really matters in terms of the broader, you know,
0: uh, like shift that's that's being pushed by all the regulatory tailwinds. So, so Max, um, EV adoption, is this like the gateway drug for the way you think about l- the electrification of the home?
2: I think they're both gateway drugs uh, to a degree because heating and cooling, you know, it's an existing $43 billion market, you know, an AC breaks in the middle of the summer you're gonna wanna replace that. And so when consumers, especially with these incentives, are faced with the option of an AC versus a heat pump, then they're gonna choose the heat pump. And so then they're gonna be thinking, okay, electrification, okay, EV charging, solar, home batteries, appliances. So yeah, so I think they both are nice lead-ins. One of the things that's most exciting to us about the incentives
4: is when you talk about subsidizing the cost of these systems, in particular for low-income Americans, you're talking about pulling in the demand curve in parts of the economy that otherwise like you said just weren't thinking about this it's not really you know it's not a, a an issue that helps with the pocketbook if you don't have incentives in place but if the you know you take $8000 off the cost of a heat pump system you actually make it cost competitive with a fossil fuel system and all of a sudden you're including a lot more people in this process of electrification and actually getting people excited about you know electrifying their homes and thinking about other systems they can do the same to and for us, you know, one of our mandates is climate change. The other is economic mobility and affordability for the average American. And so the ability for platforms like Tetra and like Treehouse to actually roll in the financing and rebate process into the point of sale, you're actually going to include millions of Americans who otherwise just weren't thinking about this because, you know, it's not top of mind when you have bills to pay Net of, without these incentives.
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. The other thing that came out of the analyst day or investor day at Tesla was that they're also going to consider advertising for the first time. So when you talk about, and this was something that a lot of investors thought that they should do and do it in an educational fashion. So to some of the points that you're making, a lot of, I think, consumers don't really even know that some of these incentives exist. So talk to me, like, you know, it seems like EVs have gotten, you know, a a lot of the um, attention as it relates to incentives, but how does it work when it comes to HVAC systems?
2: There's definitely awareness gap which were which i think these incentives are really drawing attention to and helping to close um i will definitely say from being in this market for you know over a decade it is just very different you know the idea of not moralizing it is right and people ultimately will decide for for different reasons but people are now increasingly more than ever they're making decisions based on okay what are my utility costs how would i lower them kind of thinking more from an investment perspective so you know i think there's still I think people have heard of heat pumps now mm-hmm. and then when they go to replace their system like we're seeing people ask for the different options, which is great.
0: So let's talk about these incentives. So again, if people aren't aware of them, you guys bring them to the fore at the point of sale. That has to be like a bit of a game changer here. And I'm sure you guys have some data where you just see like the acceleration of, of, if people can look at X's and O's, right, and you can kind of model it out. Talk to us a little bit about that because I know that when you think about charging and supercharging when it comes to like EVs, these are concerns that people have. They have range, anxiety, this or whatever. But the whole idea when you start Comparing about how much you would spend in gas versus what it would cost to install this at home. Like, talk to me a little bit about that because I I have to assume that that's going to be just an accelerant for adoption in in some of these products.
3: What the IRA does is it lowers the cost of ownership, you know, like for like EV to combustion car by somewhere between. $3,500 3500 and $9,000, you know, over the lifetime of the vehicle. So we think that that is the first incentive. And then on top of that, there are stackable incentives, you know, there are utilities are offering incentives to install EV charging. States and some municipalities are doing it. So it is fundamentally changing the equation. You can see uh, just recently the I think people have figured out that you can take $7,500 off the MSRP in a lease at the point of sale, which is another, you know, driving I think significant increase in EV leases just in the last few months. So it's fundamentally changing consumer behavior right now.
2: I have real data from the Massachusetts market. So in the same way that um, Romney Care was the predecessor to Obamacare, uh, the Massachusetts market had effectively identical incentives to the national to the Inflation Reduction Act. And so we were operating in Massachusetts prior to these incentives. And so we were selling probably you know we're a consumer choice customer we're like we think heat pumps make a lot of sense, but ultimately. You know, we, we let the consumer decide. But the Massachusetts market, we were selling probably 70% fossil fuel-based systems. And then the incentives kicked in and now we're above 90% heat pumps. Um, so, I mean, the transformation in the market is uh, remarkable. And I think that is like,
4: Exactly, the point of incentives is the consumer shouldn't have to care about these issues. We elect a government, they allocate a federal budget, and they're setting national priorities so that by the time you show up on the site and you're choosing to install an HVAC system or you're choosing to purchase a car, like the thinking has been done for you. It simply is the cheapest option, and that's that's the whole reason we have these incentives. And there's good data to suggest they're going to be effective. You know, the incentives um, in the solar market caused an explosion in demand, causes price to drop sustainably. And I think we'll see the same thing across these categories.
0: Uh, Danny, how how do you and James think about this as like an investment like thesis going forward? Did the IRA like kind of just, I I know these were topics that you already really focused on and invested in, but like, what did it do for you? Did it crystallize anything? Was there anything specific about where some of these rebates incentives were earmarked towards that kind of led you guys into another direction that, that you weren't thinking about prior to that? Well, I think it's
4: obviously caused a lot more interest in, in investment in the area. James and I are, are you know, kind of broadly generalist investors, and we start from a fundamental belief that the greatest companies being built today will be built in response to the greatest challenges facing the United States and the world. And I think you know, in the case of the IRA, things broke our way a little bit. But I think if you're consistently making these directional bets, those things tend to break your way. We're not always going to be right. But in the case of the IRA, it fell in our lap a little bit. And I think you know certainly there's a lot more demand for investments here. I don't think that we would have had the opportunity to uh, invest at the prices we did with the caliber of founders we did uh, after the IRA. You know, we we invested in both these companies pre-seed. They both had different names and were doing slightly different things at the time. But we bet on founders and we we bet on a direction. And now. You know, I would say with the IRA in place, for example, the point of sale financing of rebates becomes a really important competitive advantage. That probably wasn't as much the case when you're talking about just a a market-based business. But I think it's important to note, we weren't, you know, betting that the IRA would happen. These would have been businesses regardless. We think now there's just like this generational pulling in of the demand curve and we're excited to be at the table.
0: Eric, you're in Detroit. You know, it's interesting, before we turn the mics on here, you know, we were talking a little bit. It's interesting, like like 50% of every EV that was sold in the U.S. last year was not made in Detroit, okay? It was made by Tesla. And, and so when you think about some of the initiatives at Ford and GM, I mean, they're basically staking, and they've been, you know, I think— Tesla's success has helped move them along a little bit. I'm sure like all these incentives also do their entrance into, you know, Ford's F-150 Lightning is just out of the gates, so a home run, you know, it was also the best selling car or truck in America before that. What do you, What? Do, how do you see this shaking out? Do you see domestic manufacturers, some of the traditional, you know, auto OEMs, do you see them becoming a big force in, is this Tesla's to lose? Well, I'm not playing fast money. I do that on, on, on CNBC, but I'm just curious because I, I think it's worth making a bet. Like, you know, Tesla last year, they delivered a million and a half cars or something like that. They hope to deliver 2 million this year. When you think about how many cars are produced in Detroit right now, I have to assume once you get to a certain... Certain capability of making, they're easier to make, these cars, right? But then it really, to me, and I've said this all along, and I bought, you ready for this, a Ford Mach Um, Maki, you were, you drove it. It was a beautiful car. Okay. Like I'd much rather have that than the kind of the mid range sort of Tesla, but the killer app for Tesla is the supercharging stations. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what are people who have not yet decided on an EV yet? Like, what do you think the choices are going to look like two years from now?
3: I think that the traditional manufacturers are going to make massive inroads in the next few years. I think all the data suggests that they have made what you see in terms of production volume now does not reflect the massive bets that they've been making over a period of a decade to prepare for this. So you're going to see dramatic increases in scale. They were slightly slowed by the supply chain crisis of the last year, but you're going to see... I think intense competition in the EV space from all of the American manufacturers, European manufacturers, Asian manufacturers, and I think we've seen all of them produce great cars. The Mach-E is a is a phenomenal car. The Ford F-150 can power your home. as a, a home integration system that allows you to leverage your battery as backup
0: power. So it's like basically a Tesla Power Wall. Yep. Put,
3: yeah. and that'll I think that, that speaks also to, I think to the next wave of of home electrification, which is leveraging your your vehicle as backup for your home. So there are going to be lots and lots of reasons why the American manufacturers are really well positioned to compete with Tesla, with kind of the upstarts like Tesla and Rivian. And we think that they're building great vehicles that people are going to want to drive.
2: I had a, I've had had a Tesla for a while, um, and I'm going to switch over to the Taycan because I just it's just like a really nice very comparable car
0: i literally say this to people all the time if you put the model S, okay, and even a higher-end one uh, next to the Taycan. I mean, like, 9 out of 10 people would choose the Porsche. Now, here's the problem is that, okay, if you're going on a road trip, you want to, like, blow that thing out, you want to drive 500 miles, I mean, do you want to sit at a rest stop trying to find the charging network that's not Tesla's, you know what I mean? Like, I did it. It sucked. I turned my keys in in less than a year. And so, like, I'm not a fan of the Tesla cars, but I think it's really hard to argue against the network that they've created. I also think if you think long term that
4: like any business, this is about talent. It's about, you know, software engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, people who want to build the next generation of transportation. There was a time when Tesla was the only game in town, the stock price was low, and you got to work at this great mission-driven company that was going to change the world. Fast forward to today, the stock price makes no sense. And you've got a CEO who is like daily demonstrating that he doesn't share your values in most cases. And Contrast that to having the opportunity to go transform a great American car company. Like I think that's like the real threat to Tesla today.
0: Well, it's interesting. So to to your point, it's got, you know, half a trillion dollar market cap. Okay. So like at one point it had 90% of the global publicly listed market cap, okay, and they had, you know, one or 2% of global auto sales. It was all the promise, and these are all things that you guys are building companies around, conceptually, right? And so when I think about, though, what the domestic auto players are trying to do, they we know they're losing billions of dollars, right, kind of getting to a point where they can create the sort of scale. They have to reorient their entire, you know, manufacturing bases and, and all that sort of stuff. And so, but it was interesting, in that last quarter in Q1, where you, to, to your point Eric, about the price war, I mean, without the incentives that Tesla receives for, for for the credits, they would have had negative free cash flow. Okay, so like the price war caused GM and Ford and all these other guys to lose a lot of money, billions of dollars. But it also was like a ninety percent ding year over year to Tesla's you know cash flow when you think about that, and it would have swung to negative. So this is going to be a hard space, right? And so when you hear Eric talk about you know Ford building a truck, which we know people have demand for that truck, well they have demand for it from an electric standpoint or not is going to be proven, you know, over the next couple of years. But when you think about that thing being able to power a home, how does that? How do you think about that? You know what I mean? In the company that you're building, because I have to assume that gives you a lot of confidence in the trends that you guys have been betting on for a decade now.
2: The market is just completely going to shift, and so yeah, I mean, I think we're. We certainly wouldn't want to be a a heat pump manufacturer at this point, um, just because you know you saw solar. The price of solar dropped just significantly, significantly over the past 10 years, and so you have the same kind of like arms race happening right now, where you know Bosch and these other sort of like big brand names are investing billions of dollars in in manufacturing to like drive down the price. You know, it sort of makes all of this investment holistically makes electrification very much feel inevitable. Overall, really, what the incentives are going to do is they're going to drive excitement, investment, and adoption. And that's going to then pull down the price, which is then going to make heat pumps more and more affordable and actually even surpass like the traditional fossil fuel systems, which are going to be, you know, essentially put out to pasture. And that's really the goal of government incentives, right? It's not to be a forever incentive. The goal is, you know, stimulate the market until it becomes, you know until it can stand on its own.
3: Yeah, one of the things, I mean, you've hit on this twice now. I mean, there's competition in in heat pump manufacturing. There's competition in auto manufacturing. I think one of the things that's unique about where we're playing is that the $150 billion addressable market, a lot of that is in services. And what we're fundamentally trying to do is automate a lot of the services where I think there are significant bottlenecks. We haven't talked about this yet, but... There is a labor shortage. Almost all of these jobs are going to be installed by electricians or electricians are going to be heavily involved in pretty much every category that we've talked about. And we think it's important to eliminate a lot of the obstacles that exist in this industry. Eliminate unnecessary site visits, eliminate some of the the hurdles with permitting. And so we believe in this business the competition there will be good for us ultimately. Services are are going to drive this thing forward, and the ability to deliver those services efficiently is going to be a huge part of
0: it's it. It's funny. So you mentioned permitting a couple times, and again, I'm going to go back to this um, debt ceiling debate. This seems like a bipartisan issue. Like as we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we kind of raise this debt limit without giving away the, the Biden administration without negotiating too much? Because again, this debt limit has been raised dozens of times, and and often very cleanly. You know what I mean? But it seems like because the Republicans have such a small majority in the House, and McCarthy doesn't have a strong hold on his caucus. One person in his caucus could, could have a no-confidence vote, and he could be out. So when you think about things that they could agree on, that probably permitting. So talk to me a little bit about Well, there's, <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. It, No, but it's it's an odd one, right? It, well, it's a big one. Yeah, it is a big one. So, but it was part of the IRA, right, where they said it, they it basically- Permitting reform is yeah. important, yeah.
3: Permitting reform, especially to green light, major green infrastructure projects, critically important. Obviously, you know, would have concerns about greenlighting a lot of fossil fossil projects. Yeah. At the same time, I think it operates at two levels. I think there's big industrial permitting and then there's residential permitting. We deal with a lot of the, the residential permitting and it is onerous because while we believe every job should be permitted and inspected because it's the right thing for the homeowner, it's the safest thing to do. Uh, You know, just in the state of California alone, there are, I don't know how many municipalities, maybe one of you guys know offhand, it's it's hundreds, it's (laughs) over 500, and they all have their own permitting and inspection process. So there are elements of a path to electrification and decarbonizing homes that I think are held up by some of the regulatory, not requirements, we're pro-regulatory requirements, but by the, the fragmentation of those requirements across thousands of municipalities across the country.
2: Yeah, and I think I think these are really things that don't cost money, which is, you know, and places where governments can step in and, like, create uniformity, create consistency, which then can help companies like us really, you know, remove a lot of the unnecessary waste, which then ultimately drives down the price, which increases adoption. Yeah, so I think permitting is definitely, it's something that we, we both feel.
0: Um, so again, this is like the first federal bill of this size here. Do you guys, do you hear that on the ground, on a more local level, that these are very favorable sorts of things? And and does it just when it bubbles up to the, the national level on, on partisan lines that this becomes, because to me, this seems sort of obvious in a way. This is really investments in America. It's modernizing the grid here and, and, and making us more competitive globally for our goods and services. Services, that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, so I think a couple points I want to note here. So first, the headline number in the IRA, $370 billion for clean energy, that's actually a little bit of a fiction. I mean, there are a number of the credits in the IRA that are uncapped. So we actually won't know the total value of the IRA for another decade. So if consumer demand increases for EVs or for some other electrification products, the amount of the the total credits will go up. We are still waiting on states to clarify a lot of the rules around how their state departments of energy are going to interpret some of the IRA provisions at the local level. So later half of 2023 we would expect some clarity and yeah i think we do see blue states moving faster than red states at this point to take federal money and and to clarify some of the requirements for example for homeowners multi family property owners contractors all of those things are really important and they will play out at the local level but i think we'll learn more by you know q3 q4 this year
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's the the states in the south. I think we had alluded to this or or talked about this in the past. Like they're really the ones that have the highest adoption of these types of technologies like heat pumps, Florida, South Carolina, some of the biggest states for heat pump adoption. And, you know, I think the concern is that it's that this is going to be made a blue state, red state. And then it's just going to actually disproportionately impact uh, red states.
4: I think even beyond the IRA, one of the things the Biden administration has done well, and you see this with the CHIPS Act, is a lot of the investment, it is like they are making a real effort to use these landmark pieces of legislation to bring people together and to make sure that incentives are benefiting people, whether they're red or blue, and that dollars are being invested in communities disproportionately in places that were devastated by offshoring and manufacturing jobs. And so I think like... You know, whether or not, um, you know, Republican leadership is willing to acknowledge it, these programs, including the IRA, probably in some ways disproportionately benefit their constituents. And like, we've seen this movie before with, you know, with the affordable care act, there will obviously be a narrative spin to try and tell people that this isn't in their best interest, but people aren't that stupid. And I think eventually, you know, like with Kentucky cares was like canonical example, it's really hard to consistently tell people that things aren't in their best interest because you know, the American voter is just not
0: that stupid. Yeah, do you think though, guys, that there's a difference between we spend a lot of time on these like consumers, so HVAC systems in homes or, you know, EVs in your garage? Are there areas of this where? businesses can really kind of pick up the torch because they see the economic benefit of it, right? And, and like I saw a headline over the weekend that, you know, Exxon is getting into the lithium market because it's a good hedge for like minerals, rare minerals that go into batteries to power electric vehicles or, or, or other appliances. And I'm just curious, like where can businesses kind of get, use their smarts about this and, and thinking about it really from a, a P&L standpoint? Well, I, I think
3: There are enormous incentives, many times orders of magnitude bigger for businesses to decarbonize. There are huge incentives embedded for fast charging in rural areas. So like I think up to $100,000 for installing fast chargers in in rural areas that are going to be kind of critical waypoints when people are taking road trips across the country. So I think – there are billions of dollars available for decarbonizing buildings, helping people, you know, move across the country with electric vehicles, and I think you know you're seeing uh, a, an enormous shift already in business behavior. We talk to a lot of businesses in the auto retail space. I would say they're acting with urgency. To adopt new technologies, meet manufacturer requirements, things like that. So,
0: what does it look like though? Again, I had this experience with an EV, and I loved the car, but I hated the experience all around. I live in New York City. I park my car in a garage. The garage is like, um, you know, most people's rent payment, you know, in America for the month. They had two you know EV chargers there's there's you know 100 cars in there at some point let's say in 6 years from now you know will there be a charging station in each parking spot like what does that do to the grid like when you think about how many cars are on the road in America you think about just you know when you pull into a gas station on a highway and there's 10 cars back just to get gas can you imagine if you have to wait Thirty minutes for fast charging or whatever. I mean, it feels like there's lots of bottlenecks that that we really haven't thought out yet because I think about it through the lens of my own personal experience. And every time I started to have range, range anxiety, I look around and I don't see any of the solutions. Even when I saw Tesla, you know, charging stations, you know, with 90% of them full, it just seems like there's going to be lots of problems here. So when you talk about, you know, incentives for like in rural areas, let's focus on the places where, you know, like first, I, I I get it where there's going to be like the most likely adoption of them. I'm just curious how you think about that because I can't get my head around it. I can't. In five years, it's going to be an absolute shit show. If if they is this a great question? Let's just say adoption for EVs only goes the way that we all hope it will. Yeah. Will the infrastructure be able to keep up? Just as far as just providing the charging capabilities outside of the home and then the grid. I think there are reasons to be
3: optimistic about our
0: infrastructure
3: catching up and being able to meet demand. I think we've made huge progress with renewables. We've made huge progress with battery technology. In the state of California, I mean, we're adding you know close to 1,000 megawatts a year in battery storage capacity. I, I might be getting that a little bit wrong, but it's it's in that range. The grid is going to become more and more resilient because almost all of the devices that we're talking about are smart and utilities are going to have ways to manage demand at massive scale. There are a lot of companies that are in making investments in things like virtual power plants, things that are going to help the grid maintain resilience. EV charging specifically your EV is mostly charged overnight at a time of lower grid demand anyways. The concern that it's going to place undue strain on the grid, I think, is unwarranted. Most utilities have time of use plans to incentivize people to charge at night, and they can save money by doing it that
4: you, way. You also brought this up the other day, Eric, that the use case of home EV charging is actually what makes solar and home you know, energy storage pencil for most consumers and I think heat pumps as well and so basically like I think we can expect to see a much more resilient grid because for a lot of people doesn't make sense to have solar at home today or to have a battery at home today. But when you add an EV and you add a heat pump and all of a sudden the math flips. And so I think, you know, that's another reason to be optimistic. Most people are going to charge these things at home and they're going to now have a reason to have solar and potentially be contributing energy
0: back to the grid. Max, talk to us a little bit about the math for like a homeowner, right? Even when you get these incentives, you're you're making an investment. How long does it take to kind of get that investment back usually even with the credits?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, usually, so for heating and cooling specifically with the incentives, you know, it's more competitive than your typical AC or furnace. And so, you know, it's immediate, you know, maybe you're going to spend $10,000 on a furnace and you're going to spend $8,000 on a heat pump. So it's just a lower cost option with the incentives, which makes the payback instant. And then, you know, I mean, I think most homes, like, you know, if, especially if we think about sort of the impact to both residential and to businesses, heat pumps, if you pair heat pumps with solar and your biggest utility bill now effectively goes away because you're generating the energy through solar. I mean, the payback can be in a few years, uh, especially if you if you pair the two. All
0: right. Well, listen, guys, it looks like I'm going to have to retrofit my home. I'm going to have to get back in the EV game here a little bit. You guys are building two great companies. I mean, I really appreciate Dan Turan bringing Eric and Max to OK Computer. I hope you guys will come back. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Yeah.